Hello and welcome to Relative Digressions. I am Felicia the Inquisitor, and my co-host from between her 12th and final regeneration is... Rena. Here to put on trial season 23 in the main, in the fall, of Doctor Who. We're talking about Trial of a Time Lord, all of it, the whole thing. Everything. It, it, although you'll notice this episode is not 80 hours long. Optimistic, we haven't recorded it yet. That's true. Uh, however, we are going to be doing four different episodes for each of the sort of episodic elements of Trial. Just so you know, I have disk space remaining for recording 702 hours and 40 minutes, so that's our full limit. Right, cool. So, we are going to be starting off by discussing uh, the first four episodes of season 23, which form the first serial, which is... As with many things Doctor Who, this is another great fandom controversy. How do you refer to the episode titles of this season? Uh, we are going to be using the convention that these first four episodes are called The Mysterious Planets, because that's what they were novelised as. That's... It's, what it, well, it's what they were scripted as. Right, exactly. There are some people who are adamant that it's all one story called Trial of a Time Lord, and this is Trial of a Time Lord, parts one to four. Those people are excessively puritanical. I, though I think that, that almost touches on the interesting tension that immediately starts to exist between an overarching narrative and kind of individual episodic stuff. If there is a running theme to this season, it is tension. Yes, tension between... Everything. Everything, everybody. <laughs> I cannot imagine that this was a good working environment. No. And indeed, before we delve into the mysterious planet itself, we need to go back 18 months to understand exactly what is going on in this working environment. So those of you who have been with us since the very start, you'll know that our second episode was on the TV movie. Uh, if you haven't been with us for the start, uh, I think Flick would not like you to go back and listen to it because our sound production has massively improved since then. It's rough. I'm not going to deny it's rough. But possibly the roughest part is the part where I played in a clip of Doctor in Distress. Right, so Doctor in Distress was like a charity single that was normally in the aid of some charity, but it was also there to sort of raise the profile of Doctor Who and get it back on the screen. It's in my head now. It's annoyingly earwormy. Basically, Revelation of the Daleks was nearly the last thing ever made. The show was put on hiatus for 18 months, and the BBC would like to have killed Doctor Who. But, but the funny thing is, right, for all that we might mock Doctor in Distress, rightly so, it did work right in the same way that the happiness patrol did indeed precede the collapse of the thatcher government doctor in distress came out and then doctor who came back right whether or not there is a true causative relationship uh i i, I leave to wiser minds than me i suppose so what was going on? Why did Doctor Who come back? What was going on behind the scenes at the BBC? So Michael Grade hated the show. Right. And he was the controller or the head of He light? was the DG, the director general. Season 22 had had many problems. I mean, if you go back and listen to us discussing Time Lash, I don't think anybody denies that season 22 had many problems. Indeed. So amongst his many criticisms... He complained that the ratings were too low, although that has been debated at some length, that actually it, its ratings were perfectly healthy for the slot. He, he complained that it was 
embarrassing. Like, primarily, you get the sense his main issue was that he was just embarrassed that it was on his network, and he complained about the violence, which is probably the uh, most applicable and generally sort of agreed complaint. Right. He also compared it... So we we mentioned on Earthshock that we were coming into the era of cinematic sci-fi, Alien, Star Wars, E.T. Which Earthshock, in some ways, as we were discussing on that, does sort of draw from. Yeah, absolutely. And he felt that TV sci-fi just looked bad in comparison. Right, which is really interesting in sort of the modern context where I, where I think most of the most interesting sci-fi nowadays is being made on television rather than in movies. Yeah, that might be true. I feel like science fiction has naturally dwelled on TV for most of its life. And actually, probably the only time where that wasn't the case was the sort of immediate big takeoff of cinematic sci-fi in the late 70s and early 80s and that very quickly TV took it back and it's kind of remained more of a TV province ever since. I think you're right to some degree. I think I think what has helped is that it's so cheap now to make, well, not the sci-fi shows, television shows are necessarily cheap. Even by the late 80s, you know, Next Generation, then into the early 90s, Babylon 5. So these things, these things are absolutely true, but I think it's worth remembering that the reason Next Generation happened was because of the influence of the Star Trek movies, which continued yeah. to... And, and indeed, the Star Trek reboot movies were probably responsible for reviving some interest in the franchise as well. But it is notable that in both of those cases, what happened was it jumped into the theatres and then moved back to TV. No, I, I think you're absolutely correct. I think, actually, that uh, the serialised medium of television is much better for telling a lot of science fiction stories. Yeah, the decompressed element is a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Like a really important factor. There is an element that you just can't do as well without that time and that stripping over multiple stories. Indeed, you, you couldn't have done... I mean, okay, it's arguable if they did do it well in the end, but you couldn't have done Game of Thrones any justice, I think, on the big screen. Right. It just wouldn't have worked. And we will see in Trial, Trial is going to really heavily use its serial TV season format to its utmost extent that Doctor Who ever had, literally the, the storytelling methods employed on Trial could not be employed on a film. Yes, I mean, given that part of the plot of Trial is some Time Lords sit down and watch Doctor Who and they don't like it very much, <laughs> it reminded me of nothing else Mystery Science Theatre 3000 at points. I've never watched it, but I know enough about it to get the comparison. I feel like that's probably a comparison that has been drawn. I'm in the same, exactly the same place. I've never actually seen it. And indeed, whenever I watch it, it often isn't very funny to me. Yeah, all the clips I've seen of it are like, this is a zeitgeist that has passed. I think it's very much one of those Seinfeld is unfunny sort of tropes where media criticism has got a lot better now, but I think there's stuff deeply rooted in misting. It's really interesting that all of these tangents that we keep going off about are also just like equally applicable to the context around trial. Yeah. By the way, I found a recent quote from Michael Grade. <laughs> I hated Doctor Who. I said to the producer, do you go to the cinema much? Have you seen Star Wars or E.T.? He said, yes. I said... 
I've got news for you. So is our audience. What we were serving up as science fiction was garbage. I mean, he's not wrong. And I'm saying this with affection for the show, but he's not saying that out of a misunderstanding, I think, of what audiences wanted. Well, apparently he was, because he then cancelled the show and the audience demanded it be brought back successfully. <sighs> well, okay. So, is... in fact, he was definitely wrong. So, I think that's true. And as you said, some of the rating stuff is contested. I mean, there was also the issue that, budgetarily, they were working on a fraction of what any other drama of those ratings got. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. That the show wasn't really respected for what it was, and therefore it didn't get a chance to shine. And it's interesting how there was a whole shtick that Moffat had. He made a whole deal about the show being more cinematic than it had ever been. And was it season six that every episode had like a movie poster? No, it was season seven. Season seven, right. Yeah, and season six is quite serialised, I think. Yeah, in fact, season six is the op- season six is the really serial television one. Season seven was a hard turn into all one-parters, make it like mini-movies. Yes, although I, I think season six was when you saw that really really notable increase in the camera work and the location shooting and things. Anyway, I, I think my point is that sometimes Doctor Who does try to be like a movie, but often I think it goes back to being what it at its core is, which is a television show. TV shows in general very rarely make a successful jump to film. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back on when we watched the movie, and it's interesting now, having seen a lot more classic Who, actually, than when I saw the movie, how little the movie resembles what had been on screen. The movie isn't directly relevant because it was a TV pilot. It wasn't a theatrical release. It wasn't a movie in the sense we're talking about movies. Sure, 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 sure. And, and at some point, I think we intend to do the closest we've ever had to an actual cinema Doctor Who, which is the Cushing movies. Close in that that that's what they are. Well, sure, but obviously they don't have a ca- their canons. I mean, the Doctor isn't. A, you know, they're 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 not quite Doctor Who on screen, but they are. Right. The, so they're not Doctor Who that is close to being cinema films. They are cinema films that is close to being Doctor Who. <laughs> right. Roger. Roger. Yes. Exactly. Which, in fairness, I think is a really sensible way to do it. Yeah. No. Absolutely. There's other examples of that working. The thick of it. They did a movie called In the Loop. But notably, In the Loop is not actually in continuity with Thick of It. Yeah, exactly. So Malcolm Tucker is in it, but arguably not quite the same. And all the other characters are kind of similar to the characters they played in Thick of It, but they're not the same. And you're not yeah. expected to know anything about... Yeah, exactly. And that worked very well. I think I think it works better than the alternative where you, you expect the audience to sort of know stuff going in, I guess. I'll tell you the one big success that is perhaps almost the most relevant to a kind of Doctor Who... The Adam West Batman movie. Perfect translation of that TV show to the big screen. Right, right, absolutely. Do you think they could make a modern Doctor Who movie? Would BBC Worldwide constantly, like, moot this? They really want to do it. They're never going to get to do it, but they constantly... Would it work? I think it would be like... It would be one of those things where it wouldn't find much of an audience outside of Who fandom. And Who fandom would be like... It was alright, and there were bits I liked. And it would just be one of those awkward, weird things that got forgotten and resigned to history, then re-released on a DVD special edition in 20 years and kind of re-evaluated, and it would become one of the beard-stroking forum discussion points of 30 years from now. Right, uh, future us, or God forbid us, are talking about it on a podcast. (laughs) 
um, from our like time vaults or whatever we're living in in the year 30, in, in the year 2050. It's interesting that in Japan, anime makes the jump to cinema successfully all the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just a completely different pipeline. Yeah, it's, it, I think pipeline's the right word. A completely different TV production environment. And that's true, actually, I think, even between America and the UK and, and presumably other non-Anglophone countries as well. Your entertainment ecosystem matters a lot. I think. Yeah. It's also why I think in some ways for a long time television was more prestigious here than in, in America. I don't know if that's entirely true, but I think the BBC helps a lot here, right? Although I think it's still true, I suppose, that for a long time, and I think this is less and less true, for actors making the jump to movies from television was the big deal. There's actually a joke about that in the Five-ish Doctors reboot thing that Peter Davison made for the anniversary where Sylvester McCoy keeps bringing up the fact he's in The Hobbit and, right, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that he he's in movies. What do you think he's doing? Reading a script? Well, he's always reading scripts. And filming. Always filming. It's probably for TV. I mean, who wants to do TV? It's not like it's a motion picture. Oh, shut up. Anyway, uh, shall we talk about Trial of a Time Lord? Right, yes, let's. But all of this stuff about TV environment, all of this stuff is kind of informing why some people considered it not to work, why maybe actually it did work, and maybe trying to model it on films was actually how to make it not work, and Michael Gray didn't know what he was talking about. So it went away, and those were the reasons why. And then fan outcry brought it back in a way that we now see when shows get cancelled. Not uncommonly, but seems like quite a modern phenomena. Obviously, the big deal one at the moment is release the Snyder Cut. Indeed. I mean, the the classic one, if if I think about one from my lifetime, is Firefly and Serenity. Yes. And these days, it's basically actually you just ask Amazon Prime to pick it up. Except let's not forget, this is not a new phenomenon. This happened with Sherlock Holmes. He got killed off. I'm fairly sure there was a public outcry and, and he had to, it, Doyle wanted to kill him and then he had to bring him back. So I think, yeah, this is really not yeah. new at all. Uh, it feels new, but actually it's really a, a, a long continuation. But specifically this fan ownership bordering on fans seeing themselves as executive producers of the shows they like is yeah very much a, a contemporary thing but it's also exactly what was happening with Doctor Who in the 80s and in a sense JNT was just the most prominent fan who thought of themselves as a producer of the show and happened to have parlayed himself into actually being it Right, absolutely. I mean, like somehow he was actually the producer, but that that in many ways was incidental to his relationship with the show. And, and he, like, he really did, to a borderline unprofessional extent, dissolve the borders between the professional and the fandom. Right, which is really interesting. And and so when they brought it back, was there a big announcement? The BBC was just like, oh, no, actually, we're going to be putting it on. No, there wasn't a big announcement. What there was was very much the opposite a kind of series of slight retractions and adjustments of earlier stories that bobbled along trying to get a handle on an outraged story that had run way ahead of them. So, very entertainingly, the, the ultimate culmination, both of making big announcements and accidentally knocking down the walls to fandom, 
was that when the BBC finally recommissioned the series for 14 25-minute episodes, which was half as much as they thought they were going to get, they obviously had to inform the American distributors for syndication purposes and what have you. Right, right, for sure. Except that they accidentally sent the telex to the American fan club. (laughs) I love that. I love that. (laughs) They they were very specifically avoiding telling the fans. (laughs) Right, and then they told the fans. And is this... Is this at a time when the internet is starting to exist in universities, at least? Or is that still before that? I think we're still a little bit ahead of that curve. Like, I, I know we're we're sort of coming up to it, right? But like, think, we're not quite there like yet. Like, the very first bulletin boards might be coming into being now. Yeah, yeah. I just think that's really interesting because that is another part of the context here is that internet fandom is slowly slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. Yes. And there are, uh, in this period... Because of the the way that the schedule changed, and like at first they thought they'd just come back and carry on like before, until it became evident that the, the turmoil and the tensions were never going to let that happen. So there is this whole lost season of what was planned to just be more of what season twenty two did, basically. Yeah, so I was looking at this like tw- season twenty two originally ended with a sort of segue into a story that was going to be a return of the Celestial Toymaker, very famous. Uh, the end of Revelation of the Daleks is I know I'll take you to where Colin Baker is about to say Blackpool, and then they got cancelled, so it cuts on a cliffhanger. Right, and for that season, Robert Holmes had been contracted to come back because he'd been away for a little while, and do a story that only existed in the vaguest of sketches. Basically, John Nathan Turner went for a jolly to Singapore on the excuse that he was going to set a story there. And so Robert Holmes was going to write a story that might have been in Singapore, might have been about yellow fever, might have featured the Autons. None of that survived, but what did survive was, let's get Robert Holmes back to do the actual trial season. Right, and so the big idea for trial was Robert Holmes's ideas. I think it's a melting pot of JNT and Sayward and Robert Holmes. Right, you can't necessarily pick them apart. I just think it's really notable that a, a theme for this series of relative digressions has been, oh goodness, Robert Holmes was the person who invented this massive piece of Doctor Who mythology. And yet again, here, it's something that I genuinely hadn't appreciated, actually. Like, I, I am getting these names straight out of my head now, because you just keep hearing them, you're like, oh, I see. It's him again. It's him again, exactly. So shall we talk a little about the intro to Trial, before we hit Mysterious Planet itself? Yeah. So, it is a long debate about whether this was the smartest thing to do, possibly a slightly questionable thing to do, when... Your show has been roundly criticised, has been taken away, is is literally on trial. Uh, I believe Eric Sayward actually credits his wife as the originator of the idea to make the season story arc itself that the Doctor is on trial by officious bureaucrats, essentially, who think that it's boring and too violent and uh, i mean the minerals on them the power move the power move of just looking the executive BBC executive straight in the eye and being like john nathan turner looked michael gray dead in the eye and went 
You can't stop me, Michael. I've got a charity single. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Michael Grade really wanted him gone, but he didn't want to be tied up and thrown into a canal with concrete overshoes by Fand. Right, exactly. I no, I love it. Um, and so basically, the, the episode just starts with the Doctor being kidnapped in his TARDIS and summoned to stand trial. It actually starts with a real, like talking about power moves. It starts with a phenomenally expensive motion-controlled model shot. It's really funny because it, it's quite cinematic, and it's sort of them, them going, yes, cinematic effects. Oh, you want us to be like Star Wars, do you? All right, then. We're going to blow all of the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was the most expensive, like, motion-controlled shot filmed by a British studio at that point. Because it looks quite good. It looks amazing. At last, Doctor... Am I late for something? I was beginning to fear you had lost yourself. Sit down. So the way the trial format manifests is essentially that the Doctor, the Valyard and the Inquisitor are watching episodes of Doctor Who to decide whether or not there is value in letting the Doctor carry on. We should probably deconstruct who these people are. Um, so the Inquisitor is the person uh, officiating the Doctor's trial. The Inquisitor is the Inquisitor, does what it says on the tin. Quite. And the Valyard is the prosecutor, of which more later. But what you need to understand is that he is the prosecutor, but he clearly has a personal animus against the Doctor. And indeed, what he's prosecuting the Doctor for changes over the course of the season. Yeah, it's not a trial when the Doctor arrives. It's an inquest. And then halfway through, the Valyard just goes, this is now a trial. <laughs> Can you do that? I don't think that's how due process works. Uh, but indeed. And the Doctor is the Doctor. So the premise of the first three serials of trial is that we see an adventure from the Doctor's past. And indeed, the Doctor's wearing uh, the outfit, I think, that he wore in the previous season. An adventure in the Doctor's present and an adventure in the Doctor's future, which is quite an interesting concept because we've not seen any of these episodes before. So for us, they're all in the future. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really clever concept because it's a good structure for a time travel show anyway. But also, again, it's doing that meta thing of answering the criticisms of like, look, we know what the show was and look, we know what its issues are now. But look what we can do with it if we carry on. There is an extended bit in this first chunk, which is like the Inquisitor stops the video for being too violent. And the Valyard says, I'm sorry, madame, but this is what the Doctor's like. I can't show you his adventures without moments of such violence. And then the Doctor stands up and protests that actually he abhors violence and he's all, he's the one that's always trying to stop. And it is just a like, oh, we're too violent? Okay, well, actually... Yeah, and we will discuss this in the episodes to come. I don't want to dig into it right now. But you do say, and relevant to this one specifically, that we haven't seen any of them before, but Mysterious Planet is a story we have seen before in the sense of it being yeah, 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 yeah. very full of trad ideas, and that's not an accident. Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, Mysterious Planet is extremely trad who. Mind Warp is extremely season 22 Doctor Who. 
and then Terror of the Vervoids is, and I will dig into this more in the Terror of the Vervoids episode, somehow like Russell T. Davis-y in its execution in a way that seems supernaturally impossible. And then the ultimate throw also exists. Yeah. Of which more later. So I say that the Doctor is the Doctor as if we have to explain who the Inquisitor and the Valyard is. But notably, the Doctor is not the Doctor of Season 22 here. Indeed, he is not a complete asshole. Because even, I think, JNT and Eric Sayward understood that there were some criticisms that needed to be answered. Maybe he shouldn't have strangled Perry. Maybe that was a bad idea. Maybe the relationship between the Doctor and the Companion feeling like an uncomfortably abusive relationship is bad. Yeah. So here he is. He's got a slightly new costume. He has a much more friendly repartee with Perry and he is sending up his pomposity from the earlier season. The thing is, the interesting thing is, I was about to say around the little of some of the stuff that the new series had done, but no, the, the, the thing is that this was explicitly addressing an actual criticism. It wasn't planned to be the Doctor involving the personality. There has been some debate, some like people saying, like, oh, that was the plan all along and stuff. I don't think that was true. No, I don't think it was at all. I think they just course-corrected. And there's nothing wrong with course-correcting. And there's nothing actually wrong with lampshading it, actually, with pointing it out. And, of course, the fact that so much time has passed... In the, in the modern era, 18 months between seasons isn't actually a hugely unheard of thing. But the fact that there had been this hiatus, you were coming back to these people and you didn't have to pick it up where it left off because there was a feeling of the relationship has moved on whilst we were away and now we can just jump back into it at a slightly different point. And actually, because of the past, present, future thing, it really can give a sensation of passage of time. I don't want to throw any credence on the opinion that you have occasionally mooted, and which I'm still very opposed to, that occasionally getting cancelled for a bit is good for the show. Oh, I am actually, I have moved away from that. You've persuaded me. But in this one very specific case, the 18 months away was probably a boon to realigning the Doctor-Companion dynamic and character of the Sixth Doctor. I think the position I've evolved to instantly on this point is that if you're ever considering cancelling the show, that's already a disaster. Sometimes, this isn't about Doctor Who, actually, just television show in general. When something is limping on and limping on, then that can be really painful when it's out of ideas. But what you cannot accuse them of doing in Trial of Time Lord is being out of ideas. Now, like, people do say that, and you just sort of like, no, like, hang on. There are definitely some very big foibles here, but but they are far more an issue of too much imagination and too being ready to just do entirely new things without perhaps fully considering them than being hidebound to the past. Right. Shall we discuss the mysterious planet itself? Uh, yeah, okay. So it's sort of green and blue, and it rains. Uh, it's round. It looks a lot like Earth, funnily enough. Sorry. So let's discuss the episode of the mysterious planet. The Doctor and Perry arrive on this planet called Ravalox, which looks very similar to Earth, and then a series of events occur. So the Doctor thinks it's an interesting planet because it's so similar to Earth but it can't possibly be Earth. And then they walk into Marvel Arch Tube Station. 
so maybe it is Earth. Da, da, da. Living in what used to be Marble Arch Tube Station is a society of people who believe that the surface of the planet was destroyed in a firestorm and they can't go out there, ruled over by a huge robot called Drathro. And every now and again, one or two of them are taken to be culled and they just kind of live under this tyranny because they can't go to the surface and the only water they have is from condensation. You know, they're, they're, they're an oppressed mass in fairly classic Doctor Who style. But they happen to be in possession of a MacGuffin, the black light converter. Basically, it's a big antenna that sits on the top of the planet and it makes the energy that makes Drathro go. Gotcha. And... Around this big antennae has formed a tribe of primitive people who call Drathro the robot, the immortal, and worship him. Into this tribe of primitive people wander a couple of chancers who've come to make some cash. Glitz and Dibber. <laughs> so, so, I think I would say they come to make some wonga. Yes, that's it. Make some green, get some bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're proper, like... 70s cop show spivs. So there's an interesting comment. I didn't know, so Robert Holmes was a police officer and he frequently included, like, colourful characters, usually criminals. I think the interesting thing I found of Dibber and Glitz, Glitz especially, he is a problematic but lovable queer-coded fave. But so at one point, he uses a word of Polari? Yes. The fact that he knows Polari, I mean, okay, maybe it's the 80s is getting a little more mainstream, but like, if I wanted to come up with a more stereotypical criminal homosexual character. <laughs> they also asked Tony Selby to put on weight and grow more hair to be a big hairy bear. Well, the, the interesting thing is, right, that Glitz and Dibber look like a couple. They really do. Like, uh, to the extent that I, I'm surprised that's not explicit, they have very similar haircuts. It feels like a slightly older man, slightly younger man. Uh, it's it's so homoerotic. And that's not just me saying that, but I'm just I'm like, this is blowing my mind. And there is a repeated theme in the first episode of conversations into which Glitz walks about having multiple husbands. Right. I sort of feel like if Russell C. Davis had written Sabalon Glitz, this subtext would have been yeah. non-subtext, right? But, I, I, you know, I mean, maybe it's just kind of common at the time, because, I mean, I think you can make an argument that he is sufficiently a wrong and that there's a little bit of homophobia going on here. But I really like the character. But, but he's not actually... He's a wrong one, except that we're clearly meant to like him and be on his side. Right. He's a scamp, is what he is. He's a cheeky scamp. And he like, he does ultimately... Well, he does betray the Doctor, but he betrays the Doctor in a way where he gives the Doctor a way out, which is... He is the worst space pirate you have ever heard of. Yeah. But you have heard of him. Yeah. And I, I, what I mean by that, he is basically filling that kind of Jack Sparrow sort of moral ambiguity mode. He is, of course, going to become a recurring character, both within this season and beyond. Indeed, indeed. Um, Although not with Dibber, sadly. Well, you know, it's, that's a shame that relationships break up. In fact, next time he turns up, his partner in crime will be Ace in her first appearance. Right, right, indeed. Um... It's a very different relationship. Uh, yes, I can imagine. Although, if you read the VNAs, apparently not that different. <clears throat> Yeah. The VNA say that A's lost her. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I, yeah, I am aware. I just don't. Yeah, yeah. They say a lot of things. <laughs> they do say a, a lot, lot of things. things. 
Um, it always comes back to the looms. <laughs> um, but Glitz and Dibber sort of stride across the story, a kind of classic Holmes Dirac, but you have this slightly... It's very... He's he's a bit... And it, it, when I say that Doctor Who at the time is quite camp, you know, I, I guess it's, it's, it's something I've not really dug in too much. And I don't know if it was written about it, but like JNT, famously gay... Russell yes. T. Davis also. I mean, the JNT and Russell T. Davis parallels are kind of uncanny. They even have three-letter acronyms for names. I guess what I don't really understand is the way Doctor Who existed in the nerdy queer imagination of the time. That it was camp, and for a mainstream audience, we know. Like, I suppose, quite a bit of light entertainment. But is that some of the background for why the show was disliked by the establishment in the BBC? And I, I feel like these things are never going to be explicitly yeah. stated. It's an interesting thought. And we will talk more when we come to Mind Warp about how it seems to prefigure certain aspects of the McCoy era, where, again, it was trying to stick it to authority with an awful lot of queer coding. Right. Absolutely. I'm not saying by any means it's always well done. But I think it is interesting. You know, Dibber, I'm the product of a broken home. Um, you have mentioned it on occasion, Mr. Glitz. Which sort of unbalanced me. Made me selfish to the point where I cannot stand competition. Know the feeling only too well, Mr. Glitz. Whereas yours is a simple case of sociopathy, Dibber. My malaise is much more complex. A deep-rooted maladjustment, my psychiatrist said. Brought on by an infantile inability to come to terms with the more pertinent, concrete aspects of life. So from this setup, the plot then plays out in a way which is very traditional Doctor Who. Uh, Glitz recognises the MacGuffin for what it really is, but Katrika, leader of the tribe, says people keep turning up trying to cheat them one way or another, so she takes him prisoner, there's some classic Doctor Who-y escapee shenanigans, Perry gets caught as well, she teams up with Glitz and Dibber. Meanwhile, in the tunnels, the Doctor meets Drathro. He learns that Drathro was put there to guard some people in cryogenic sleep, something's gone wrong, there's some muddy bits that I don't think entirely hang together. One of Drathro's lieutenants is running an underground railroad, shipping people off to the surface where they get to join the tribe. Right. It's the most classic tyrannical robots gone wrong, oppressing a society who have ritualised technology and then Doctor Who turns up to save the day and frees all the people and destroys the robot and the slightly dodgy but basically kind-hearted antagonists become allies. Yeah. This is a story that is criticised as being Robert Holmes, who is not doing very well in his health, just rehashing things and not doing his best work. But I think that's missing the point. It's very deliberately, it, it's the past of Doctor Who. That's what it is. It's Doctor Who as we have known it in the past. Yes, I'd just be reminded of the bit where Glitz tells Dibber that five rounds rapid ought to distinguish yeah, a door. exactly. So I was making notes of like all of the back references in this story. There are lots. Right, and it's deliberate. It's deliberately done. I think it's interesting how what it doesn't have is any returning monsters. The funny thing is, I feel like if it had returning elements in it, it wouldn't feel like a past Doctor Who, it would feel like a present Doctor Who, and hey look, the present one has a returning character. 
No, yeah, absolutely. So, so the thing is, if you're doing a homage to past stuff, is that past stuff more often has new things because you've got less stuff to yeah, pull. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that is part of the deliberate thing as well. It's a thing that can sometimes be, it's not always bad, and sometimes it's very fun, but bad nostalgia, when it is bad nostalgia, is the fact that you are aping back to a thing inherently is meaning you are not actually being like the thing because the thing right. when it first came to be had nothing to ape back to yes exactly it's uh, sort of the paradox of nostalgia in some sense that nostalgia is sort of self-annihilating actually the overwhelming thing this reminds me of is so i used to collect the fighting fantasy game books so this episode reminds me of Fighting Fantasy Game Bugs in its aesthetics. Yeah. You can imagine those like line art drawings of Katrika appearing on page 306. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is exactly it. So the, the, the art from those books has this very distinctive art style, which I think really defines them. And Drathro, Katrika, all of this stuff... The way the plot is put together... Drathro is a front cover robot, isn't he? Drathro is absolutely a front cover robot, that's the thing. There's something about the aesthetic resonance they are tapping into. The way that the trial dips into and frames around and occasionally interrupts the main story, kind of, you, you've turned to a passage that's kind of pulled you out of the action. Right, absolutely. If I was writing the game book of Trial of a Time Lord, how you would structure it, I think, is having the trial segments be like pinch points in the branching where you bring the branching back together and then you kind of move on. I think that's what I was trying to flail towards, is that that's what they are. It's so rooted in that time and aesthetic and sensibilities, and I thought that was super, super interesting. And because I think the phenomena of the cover monster is also what often powers the cover-up for, like, the target novelizations. Yeah. It's not a dissimilar thing. And, yeah, when I saw Drafter, I was just, like, I was almost t- taken back. I really like Drathro's design, I, I just want to say instantly. Drathro's design is super good. I don't understand how he sees. Well, he's got a giant radar dish on his head. I assume that that's how he saw. Oh, I guess that is what that is. Okay, that makes sense. Um, it's such a distinctive design. It's very cool. They specifically decided to like make a robot that didn't have clear rubberized joints and stuff like it was a man in a suit. The, the result being that the costume incredibly difficult to working and Richard Riley was like no I'm not doing that I'll do the voice from Offset I really wanted an action figure of it there must be one there must be one I have been waiting for this day welcome at last you're expecting me? for centuries I am Drothro an L3 robot then I fear you are under a slight misapprehension Drothro I only decided to come here yesterday you are not from Andromeda and where are you from? Uh, Gallifrey, originally, though I travel around a lot. I have heard of Gallifrey, an advanced civilization. In some ways. I apologise for my error. Oh, that's all right. Even immortals make the odd mistake every few millennia. So, turning to page 108, there's a nice moment where, when they realise that they're on Earth, Perry has this shock of realising she's seeing Earth with civilization wiped out, like everything she knew is gone, almost exactly like Rose in End of the World. Right. Uh, and this is not as well handled as sort of stuff with Ace will come to be, but actually this is setting up a character arc for Perry across the trial season that she starts to miss Earth. And from there we go to this whole thing about 
multiple husbands with Katrika and Glitz and what have you, and talking about weddings, and this is all setting up, not a plot arc in the same developed way as season 26, but almost accidentally because of this whole framing narrative, they've kind of fallen backwards into inventing the plot arc early. Right. It's much more clear here as an arc than it is in a... Right. It's more explicit and less of a character development. It's like explicit signposts. And I think it's it's another example, as you say, of the way that the unique structure of Trial does stuff differently. There were times when I was watching Trial that I was a little bored. But by and large... Even when I'm like not sure about what it's doing, it's quite interesting. The one thing you cannot deny is that it is an interesting season of television. Yes. That isn't the same as good. It isn't the same as bad. But it is interesting. And I'm very glad that I watched it. And we will have more to say on Perry in particular next time. And maybe also on the bits that are less good. All right, well, let us suspend the proceedings of this trial for now. Let's take an adjournment, but the court will be back in the session in just a week's time. And I think we might be making a bit more of a case for the prosecution. Yeah. All right, cool. BritBox, incidentally, I watched this on BritBox because they offer a service now just so that you can watch this serial across the course of a month. It's a 30-day trial. The worst of it is that the other 30-day trial is I have to listen to your bad puns for the next four weeks. No jury would convict me. <laughs> well, no, yeah, but were I to stop you before you can continue, I would get off scot-free. I've been Renner. I've been Flick. And this has been Relative Digressions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renna Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future.